0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host Leah Greenberg. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Salvatore Papalardo about his latest book Modernism in Trieste: The Habsburg Mediterranean and the Literary Invention of Europe, 1870 to 1945, published this year by Bloomsbury Academic. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Um, Well, Dr. Papalardo is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Towson University in Maryland. Uh, He holds a PhD in Comparative Literature from Rutgers University and a BA in Translation Studies from the Advanced School of Modern Languages for Interpreters and Translators in Trieste, Italy. He teaches on European modernism, Sicily, and Mediterranean studies, comparative literature, and world literature. Um, and he's been awarded the Honors College Professor of the Year at Towson in 2019, um, prestigious uh, prestigious ACLS project development grant in 2018, 2019, and the Max Cade Prize for the best article of the year in the German Quarterly in 2016. Um, and to get our interview started, um, I would actually be curious to hear a bit about um, how what your background is and how your background, which I think intersects uh, linguistically and geographically with the book Modernism in Trieste. Um, the book is about the conception of Europe um, pushing back against the concept of nation and how Trieste is a microcosm um, of a lot of these um, national and non-national commitments at the beginning of the Um, 20th century uh, and beyond uh, in this area. So if you could tell us what brought you to this particular research project in terms of your um, formative years and your education, just let the audience know a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, certainly. Um, And uh, again, thank you so much for for having me. uh, yes well the the book in many ways intersects with my uh, personal experience. I am um, Italian but I grew up in uh, Germany close to the uh, Black uh, forest and um, it was uh, very close to the uh, to the Rhine and so um, it's one of those areas that was contested during uh, World War one and I remember as a um, an elementary uh, school child, we had this exchange program with our French neighbors. And uh, later in life, I realized why that, why that was. And that was obviously fostering this kind of uh, Franco-German uh, friendship uh, in uh, kind of the wake of World War I and, and, and World War uh, II. And, um, and then, um, I, I, so I grew up in Germany, and I lived there until I was 15, uh, with my family, then we moved back to my native uh, native Sicily, uh, where I attended high school. Um, and then I moved again, and I moved to Trieste to study in, um, in college. And so in many ways, my book project starts then, uh, even though I didn't really know it at, at the time, um, uh, because I then continued to study comparative literature, mainly in, in, in German and, uh, and Italian, but I didn't necessarily focus on, on Trieste at, uh, at, at the time. And so after my doctoral studies, I uh, came back to, to Trieste via uh, German slash Austrian studies because I kept seeing that it um, was mentioned many times in uh, Austrian authors. And so I started thinking about this, uh, this idea of, of Trieste, uh, the city that today obviously is um, is, is in Italy, but for uh, more than five and a half centuries was under Austrian rule, which is something that you kind of see and um, even today uh, in um, in in Trieste. Um, and so, what I try to do with the with the book um, is kind of try to. Um, kind of revive my memories of my uh, formative years in in, in Trieste. Um, And then I try to kind of make the case that Trieste um, is an important capital of European modernism, uh, right? A little bit like Berlin, uh, Paris, London, um, or, or Vienna. But the thing is that Trieste is such a unique place, right? It's a Mediterranean port city, at the crossroads of German, Italian, Slovene, and Croat cultures and, and literatures. And so I felt that I could only achieve this by putting different disciplines in conversation with, with each other. Um, so the book is definitely about the literature of the Habsburg Empire and Austria after World War I, but it's also a book in Mediterranean studies, given the Mediterranean imaginary of the authors that I, uh, that I discuss. Um, it also fosters an exchange, a conversation of sorts between German and uh, and Italian studies, which is you know my my the disciplines in which I feel most um, at, uh, at at home. So the you know the interdisciplinarity of the book was definitely a choice of mine, but also a necessity that the history of Trieste kind of imposed on on the work. So Trieste kind of determined its own. Methodology of of study, if that if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's um, that's a really wonderful summary of of so how do these different disciplines, um, languages, and regions intersect. And so, as you mentioned, you're trained in literary studies, um, and therefore you you focus your analysis on literature. But I was wondering if you'd expand on on why and how literature serves as the best sort of proving ground for. Talking about these questions of nationalism and non-national commitments, um, and what the role of, of myth making is, both in the literary, explicitly literary, and explicitly political sphere, and those often intersect. Of, intersect Of course,
0: certainly, yeah. Um, so, in, in in many ways, uh, what what I what I you know what happens in the book is that there is also kind of a background in in kind of recent Habsburg historiography, right? And so um, in lately we've been looking at how um, this idea that in Central Europe you have the rise of, of, of the nation and nationalism kind of brought down uh, the empire is something that has been uh, questioned lately, um, especially because people started Kind of writing this history from from below and, and obviously uh, a lot of Habsburg subjects didn't necessarily um, identify with with the nation and so I tried to test that kind of hypothesis that idea um, with the authors that kind of wrote and grew up in the in the Habsburg Empire and in in many ways it was surprising to me how much these authors, in their literature kind of resisted this idea of embracing, um, of embracing uh, the nation. And um, the Habsburg Empire in many ways is um, made up of many myths, right? I mean, we have the Habsburg myth, uh, this idea that the Habsburg Empire was such a benign uh, empire and that kind of glosses over a little bit the uh, very problematic kind of nature of the empire, kind of the police state, the, 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 the censorship, and, um, and, uh, and all of that. Um, but so if nation building is myth-making, uh, then also these ideas of the non-national and these ideas of a non-national Europe are very much uh, grounded in this conversation between history, politics, uh, and, uh, and, and literature. And so literature then becomes this privileged testing ground of um, historical ideas, political ideas, and uh, the kind of aesthetic re-elaboration of these, uh, of these ideas. And this is one of the things that I tell my students, you know, this is why I read literature. This is why I enjoy it so much, because all of these um, elements that make uh, who we are um, get a stage, in, in, in literary texts, uh, and that allows us to kind of put them under a microscope and and, and study them.
1: Yeah, and, and in particular, one of the the myths that gets told or, or gets retold and reformulated that you focus on um, throughout the text is um, this counter narrative to the um, the Greco-Roman uh, legacy, in particular, in the German-speaking context, being countered with um, the sort of Phoenician origin story, and I think that m- might be um, new to many readers. And I was wondering if you could expand um, on, on how that was played with um, by these authors, and how that was um, um, sort of instrumentalized.
0: Certainly. So um, the office that I that I discuss had a a vision of classical antiquity that transcended the kind of narrow view that uh, we usually have, uh, right, of just the Greeks and and the Romans. And in many ways they were right, because the ancient Mediterranean um, had many more cultures, right? You have the Etruscans, you have the Egyptians, you have the Minoans, you have the Near East that is in conversation with the Mediterranean, and you have the Phoenicians, uh, who are often overlooked um, and maligned, even in ancient sources, right? Because they are a kind of trading rivals of, of the Greeks. And then uh, Carthage, which is the um, uh, most important uh, Phoenician colony, becomes the arch enemy of, uh, of, of Rome. And um, uh, the Author that kind of got me onto the Phoenicians was James Joyce, uh, the Irish author who um, kind of spent his formative years in uh, Trieste, and who believed or pretended to believe in the Phoenician origin of the Irish. So obviously, historically, that is um, an idea that doesn't hold much, much water. Um, but I was really interested in the kind of cultural politics of this of this gesture. What does it mean to present Ireland as um, originally uh, Phoenician? And the way I read it is that it was a very political gesture, right? I mean, Joyce is saying, so we are Phoenicians and uh, also Mediterraneans, which means that we are not. Um, of English stock, we're not Anglo Saxons and we're not British, um, and so this is how I got onto the Phoenicians, and then I see them reappear in Zvevo, uh, I see them reappear in in Mosul, and I see them uh, reappear in um, the kind of archaeological uh, research in uh, in Trieste and in the region. Um, so so many historians and antiquarians start to think about Trieste, which had a very uh, prominent uh, Jewish uh, population, as the Phoenicians as one of the potential founders of, of, of the city. And here I should mention that the Phoenicians uh, are a, a Semitic uh, population of, of seafarers that are known uh, for their um, shipbuilding and their trading in, uh, in the Mediterranean. Um, and so I, I was kind of fascinated by this, uh, by this idea of the Phoenicians, especially because there may be also, again, a personal connection. Uh, since I'm originally Sicilian, the Phoenicians uh, came to Sicily um, very early on, even before the Greeks arrived, uh, arrived there. And so that kind of piqued my, my curiosity, and as I started kind of investigating this idea, I see that there is an entire modernist um, kind of culture that uh, looks at the Phoenicians as um, a founding uh, element of this new Europe that that is being imagined.
1: Uh, yeah, and this idea of of a new Europe, you talk a lot about um, the idea of Europe and. Um, All different alternative um, constellations of what European unity or lack thereof might mean, um, both in the contemporary period that you're talking about and and in the future. Um, So I was wondering if you could maybe outline some of the um, different reimaginings of um, ideas that push back against nationalism, ethno-nationalism that come up from authors like uh, Musil, for example, and, and others in your text. Mm-hmm.
0: Certainly. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, via the, the, the Phoenicians, obviously the, the Phoenicians are a pre-modern um, population um, and they are um, kind of a very interesting uh, population because since they are such um, wonderful and amazing seafarers, they never really developed um, kind of a common identity. So their their identity was uh, urban. So they identified with the urban centers uh, or trading posts um, that they were forming in the, um, in the ancient uh, Mediterranean. And so they were not tied to this kind of um, what Nietzsche calls the soil addiction of, of what later then becomes uh, nationalism. And so the, the, there is a marrying of this um, Habsburg culture that keeps the idea of the nation at, at bay and the Phoenicians as a uh, kind of precursor to this uh, to this idea. And I kind of think about um, Zvevo, for instance, uh, who's kind of a great uh, great example of this kind of Habsburg identity, right? Uh, he is um, an Italian speaking uh, Jew of Hungarian descent who thinks about himself as a German Austrian as as well a little bit like Kafka right um, who kind of navigates between his uh, German Czech and, and, and Jewish um, and Jewish identities and so Fosvevo, the Kind of a necessity to, to identify now with um, a, a nation of choice is something that doesn't very that, that doesn't sit well uh, with him, and so he tries to kind of undermine uh, the cultural nationalism of you know uh, the Italian irredentists in, uh, in 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 the city. Or you have um, people like Musil that you uh, that you mentioned. So Musil um, again is very critical of this idea of national uh, identification, because he says, we have a history of, um, and and obviously a a muddled and a difficult history um, of people who speak different languages, inhabit different cultural communities uh, that resist this idea that, um, you know, nationalism demands um, a unique allegiance, right? You can only be German or you can only be Italian and nothing else. And Musil says, well, that's not really how, you know, Habsburg subjects, uh, and in many ways, human beings really work, right? We have emotional ties to uh, different communities. Um, we tend to speak um, different uh, languages. And we can feel at home in different, again, cultural, religious, and um, you know, linguistic, uh, linguistic communities, and so I found that really interesting. Uh, that um, it's a different way of looking at um, the kind of needs of, of of humans who tend to be multicultural and multi and multilingual. And so, this idea of a future Europe would be a body politic that would kind of accommodate these uh, these these needs. Um, and obviously, it's problematic because, in many ways, it's tangentially touching on um, a sort of Habsburg nostalgia, right? In the sense that is this a continuation of, of the empire? Ultimately, I believe it is not. Um, it is a, uh, the Habsburg Empire served as a model, and Musil tries to save what um, is salvageable of this um, uh, Habsburg experiments that, as we all know, miserably, miserably failed.
1: Mm. And and when you bring up Svevo, this makes me think of um, a part of the text where you mentioned the idea that he was a guest in, I think it was the term guest, in both German and Italian. And so that, I think, also highlights a recurring theme of the sort of dialectic of at-homeness and being alien um, throughout the text that you work with. Um, and I was wondering if you could also, uh, you know, expand on that, how, how these works um, bring both ideas of, of um, a multiplicity of belonging, but also the constant sense of alterity.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, the, the constant sense of displacement and... Um, not feeling at, at, at home. And, and Zvevo is a great case because he is very uncomfortable with Italian, right? He he writes in Italian, um, and it's um, very difficult to figure out um, in what language uh, languages Zvevo felt comfortable with. Um, my understanding is that he... Was really dialectophone, that his native language was the Triestine dialect, um, which is already kind of a composite, um, a composite uh, dialect because it tended to incorporate all the languages basically spoken in Habsburg Trieste um, and all of the languages spoken in the uh, in the empire. And so his his Italian is very strange. If you read Zvevo uh, in in the original, you have the sense that um, he is struggling. Um, he wrote his novels with the help of a dictionary, uh, a Triestine and Italian dictionary, and um, we've been trying to kind of read Zvevo as a champion of uh, you know Italian irredentism and this idea that he really felt uh, felt Italian. Um, but that is again a little bit problematic because um, he. Apparently, when he started speaking about literature, he would get all worked up, and uh, all of a sudden he would switch uh, to German. So German, in many ways, is a language of, of, of his literature, even if it is hiding underneath uh, the, the Italian. And so this idea that uh, Zvevo speaks or writes or could have written um, equally well in Italian and German is, um, is kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting idea, right? I, I think it's Umberto Saba who at some point said uh, Zvevo could have written really well in German uh, but he decided to write in bad uh, in bad Italian. Um, but, you know, um, people who knew Zvevo say that well, he, his Italian wasn't great but his German wasn't great either. And so what do you do with Zvevo? Where do you place him? Uh, where do you see him at, at home? And so I think that it's, again, as you, as you mentioned, this, this dialectic of uh, Zwevo feeling at home, but also feeling um, like a guest, uh, both in um, this kind of Italian identity, the German-Austrian identity that he had, not to mention his, uh, his Jewish identity, Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know he, he converts to Catholicism in order to marry, um his his wife, and in his letters you know there is evidence that he regrets that regrets that choice,
1: um yeah and and the very uh, notion that he speaks badly in a certain language also of course is a product of nationalism away because of the very idea of consolidating a language to its correct standardized form is you know, a product of, 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 um, of, of power. Um, so I think that's, that's very illustrative also of just some of the general themes. Um, and, and to the theme of, of his Jewishness, I, w- I would be interested in, in talking more about that. And also, um, the idea of Jewishness as a trope as well occurs throughout the book and Freud makes an appearance as well. Um, if you could tell our listeners a bit more, um, about those themes.
0: Certainly, Freud appears in Trieste in 1876, and that is uh, one of, I think, the funniest stories of, of the book. Um, and this is something that I, I didn't know. And so apparently, um, for a long time, uh, we did not know how eels reproduced. And that is because the sexual organs of eels are so elusive. And so in Vienna there is this young, uh, promising uh, college student um, who is sent to uh, to Trieste to study eels, and that student is is, is Freud, who spends um, some some time in, uh, in 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 Trieste, and in his letters we see how you know the eighteen year old Freud is fascinated by, uh, by 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 Trieste, by its Jewish history. And by this idea um, that um, the city may have been Phoenician uh, originally. And that kind of plays an important role, I think, in Freud's um, kind of idea of, of his own Jewish identity because as you know even as a young young man and even before that he was looking for um, kind of Jewish uh, role models, mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned before that you know the Phoenicians are um, very close to uh, um, to, to um, kind of this Jewish identity, um, and so um, for for a long time, um, you know, anything uh, Phoenician was code for uh, for Jewish, and so for Freud. Um, this kind of experience in, in, in Trieste is um, is formative because he finally sees that well these these Phoenicians slash, uh Jews uh, you know um, uh, accomplished something very important right and that is the foundation of this uh, of this important, um, of this important city. And so what Freud then later does in interpretation of dreams is that he recalls, this conflict this father um and he uh you know imagines kind of a very strong and assertive uh jewish identity uh which obviously um is um a carthaginian uh, kind of identity right uh, at the beginning of the century and you see this in joyce as well in schools uh, even grammar uh books always had these um examples and these drills in which the romans who were the good guys would always fight against the the phoenician carthaginians who were the bad guys and uh, freud uh in the same way uh as as in many ways musy's vevo and and enjoys sides with these phoenicians sides with the carthaginians because they offer a new model of Jewish uh, of Jewish masculinity that is um, assertive and, and 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 dominant.
1: Yeah, and that definitely and, and you mentioned this in the book as well um, ties into um, ideas of from Max Nordau, for example, and, and Muskeljudentum. Um, so, so that to me was a very um, fascinating um, connection. And um, make a bit of a jump here to think sort of about um, the broader picture. Um, I was wondering, you know, this this book felt very optimistic in many ways uh, or, or sort of offering a lot of paths towards reimagining um, the recurring pressures and limitations uh, and strife caused by the national idea. And I was wondering if if that was... Was, it, was your aim to make this an optimistic book. Um, I definitely see optimism in the conclusion, for example, although I don't wanna jump all the way there quite yet. Um, what do you think that the contemporary reader might learn from um, this text and the alternative conceptions of, of allegiance and of community that it offers?
0: So I have to say that I am, I am an optimist by, by nature, so that, that probably transpired in, um, in, in the book. And, um, you know, there is maybe, you know, there is optimism, but there may be also kind of an excitement about um, the different possibilities that uh, an idea of Europe uh, gives us for, um, for the future. Uh, And so I mentioned uh, before how uh, we think about the past as um, a series of unexplored uh, or failed um, experiments. And I think that there is a value in going back and looking at what didn't work uh, in the past and see if we can learn from that and kind of readjust, uh, readjust things. And um, I'm certainly not optimistic um, when, you know, when I, when I see the kind of rise of kind of this very aggressive nationalism that, we, that we're seeing uh, worldwide. Um, but what gives me hope is this idea that there is a different model of, um, of, of, of Europe and of thinking about uh, one's own um, identity. Um, right, that, that is not one that necessarily has to exclude um, the otherness, right? So it doesn't have to exclude who is different from, uh, from, from us. And so imagining you know a post-national Europe today seems, um, as you say, optimistic, uh, and I don't think we are uh, we are there. Uh, but I think this is why, you know, and this goes back to the question before, about the, the power of literature, right? It helps us um, imagine a, a world that is uh, that is different, and so I think reading fiction uh, should be something that you know that that, that we should encourage um, because of the fictional nature of of, of literature. It, it helps us kind of imagine things uh, differently, and I think that's kind of. A recipe for, you know, thinking about thinking about the future, right? How to how to change things, how to correct things that aren't working right now.
1: Hmm. And, and to that end, or to that issue of of imagining um, communities, we talk about imagining communities as well. That that famous concept. But imagining Europe, maybe you could sketch out too for the listeners what have been the um, How has Europe been imagined sort of over the centuries? What have been the different um, conceptions of it?
0: Well, a Europe uh, that is definitely a um, Europe of the North and a Europe of the West, right? It is a Europe that has excluded the Mediterranean, uh, for instance, it has excluded uh, the South, um, and, you know, this may sound like a very abstract idea, but if you think about what's happening with um, the uh, refugee crisis in, uh, in, in, in the Mediterranean, you see how European Union sometimes um, doesn't really know what to do with um, its own internal Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean identity. And uh, yeah, I go back to you know port cities like Trieste or big islands. You know, I I I go back to my native uh, native Sicily. And again, you look at the literature. And so, if you look at the literature of uh, of of Sicily or of 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 Trieste, you see in the kind of literary record that it is always a place where new people arrive. Uh, a, new, um, a new wave of, 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 of refugees. I mean, we, we talk about the classics, right? I mean, if you think about the Greeks and the Romans, you see that all the big heroes from uh, Odysseus to Aeneas, Aeneas especially, right? I mean, he's a war refugee from, from, from the Trojan War. Um, and so that we kind of tend to forget this kind of uh, this kind of uh, identity, and that port cities like uh, Trieste uh, or cities that open up to to the Mediterranean should kind of invite us to rethink what it means to be uh, to be European and what to um, be uh, kind of how to be open. To um, an, an identity that is not northern and 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 western. Here, here I blame Hegel for, for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and and to that end, do you have the sense that the best that that one can hope for is a sort of idea of um, um, a mixture of many nations, like a, a multiplicity, or a f- total transcendence of the boundaries in the first place, because we talk a lot about, you know, a mixture of cultures, a multiplicity of cultures, multilingualism, hybridization, but at the same time, they're still based on individual national categories coming together, but not necessarily being um, um, sublimated into something completely different. Um, So I was wondering if you think there is... um, or what your thoughts are on, on the idea of transcending the national c- category altogether, or if um, the idea of uh, a multiplicity is, is sort of the, the most possible option. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I think of nations as convenient administrative units, right, that have their laws and their, uh, their rules, Um, And but I think that I I would divorce the kind of administrative apparatus from the ways in which um, we identify as, um, you know, as as people who tend to have multiple um, emotional attachments to uh, to communities. And I see this with with, you know, both in Europe, but also in um, in the United States, when people kind of uh claim a um an ethnic uh heritage and so it always means that uh we see ourselves as um part of different communities that transcend uh borders and i and i like to think of this idea as um something that kind of we have lost with um the kind of affirmation of this national identity that um kind of requires uh, uh, kind of a unique a unique allegiance. In many ways, that kind of goes back to kind of my upbringing, right? I, I grew up in, um, in two different countries, um, and for me, the question for a long time was, well, what, what am I, right? Um, am I supposed to um, kind of swear allegiance to uh, one identity, one, one flag, or is there room to cultivate, uh, different, uh, different homes. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't think that, um, this is, um, uh, you know, too much, too much to ask. I think that, uh, we have kind of embraced this national mythology that imagines, uh, human beings as more, you know, monodimensional. And I don't think that's, um, that's 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 who we are as as human beings and so the state apparatus uh, i think has to kind of allow for that uh uh for that flexibility Uh, and i see that we kind of erect borders and um and kind of tight compartments uh and i don't necessarily just mean state borders, but also borders between identities so if if you are one thing you can't be uh you can't be uh another i don't know if that makes sense
1: no, it definitely does. and and I, I can certainly identify with that. I think you you mentioned in the book that it's it's difficult to do away with the vocabulary of nationhood because they are useful organizational units, useful anchoring points, and often necessary anchoring points. Um, but of course, to certain ends um, can also be dangerous. And um that made me also think about, you know, I, I know that the process of of writing and publishing a book is a long one.. Um, and And a lot has has happened in terms of um contemporary europe and and contemporary politics, probably since the initiation of the project until it went to press. And of course, you know, in the last year, the idea of, of freedom of movement in europe has has been crippled, not not necessarily for the reasons um that that one might expect, but but rather for for public health reasons. So I was wondering, um you know over the past year or so, you know better when when your book, uh, you know, was uh, when you hit save and, and sent it away. Um, you know how much you've you've thought about, um, rethought about some of the ideas that you discuss and and how it's been newly inflected over the past year or two.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, with COVID and uh, kind of the closing of of, of borders and. Um so i i i think that um this is again kind of COVID has tested right this idea of national solidarity um because what is needed is a collective response right uh what is needed is um a solidarity that uh, we need to foster um among the other members of uh, of, of the nation first right and then Uh, in terms of um, other people who may be affected by our uh, our actions and um, see there for instance I see this kind of very um, uh, very glaring contradiction right Uh, when um, people refuse to kind of uh, extend that solidarity that we all kind of take for granted within uh, within a nation right why Shouldn't we be more careful um, and kind of follow the science and follow the advice uh, of uh, of doctors when that kind of helps my fellow um, members of, of the nation? So COVID definitely kind of questions this idea, right, of, of, of national solidarity that we don't necessarily uh necessarily see, um and then i will say something that in part contradicts what i've been just saying right i mean this is an emergency and um and sometimes maybe it is useful to just stay put for a while right uh, so that uh, later on we can um we can uh, hug and embrace uh, each other with more uh, with more uh, with more ease. But I think that uh, Covid certainly has tested uh, many of these uh, many of these ideas. And I think that um, as much as we kind of encourage uh, mobility, sometimes it's also just good to stay uh, to stay put and stay where we are.
1: An important message. Um, and i and I do hope that that um you know things eventually move towards, Towards the better, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your conclusion as well, which is titled "The Danube Flows into uh, the Mediterranean." Um, and I'd be interested in hearing a bit more about um, how you bring Derrida into this and sort of Derrida's Europe. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah, the, um, the the conclusion of the book, I, I kind of s- start thinking about. You know how the authors that I discuss uh, in, in in the book, um, how they are read later on, with Magris and, uh, and, and and Derrida, and, and Derrida is um, this kind of great example of this Mediterranean European uh, identity. Um, somebody who a little bit like Joyce, a little bit like uh, Zvevo, um, is uh, both at home but also a guest. Um, in, these different, uh, in these different cultures. And obviously, kind of um, this idea of a kind of different Europe that from the, the, this kind of modernist canon that I, that I described kind of flows into, into David Hedda's idea of um, a, a different cape, right? I mean, he, he, he writes about a Europe that is Mediterranean, a, a Europe from the other shore, Um, And so I kind of look at the later uh, Derrida and the idea of Europe that, you know, he um, kind of puts together a little bit the uh, very um, important subtext of of the book. And that is one of the protagonists is uh, Europa, the uh, Phoenician. Uh, maiden of uh, Greek uh, and Roman uh, mythology. And so with Derrida, we see a little bit what uh, the others auth- other authors are doing as well, and that is that in kind of thinking about uh, this foundational myth of, of Europe, uh, rather than kind of identifying with the Greek and Roman Zeus or Jupiter, we should identify and let the ship, as, as Derrida uh, says it, kind of be steered by this new captain by uh, by by Europa.
1: Yeah, and that again you, it brings together the the um, the issue of water, and and water is both um, you know such a useful um, a useful space in sort of bringing together these different cultural influences and and towards these these new. Um, uh, yeah confluences of cultures but it's also of course a problem as you mentioned I, and I'd be curious to hear more about both the problems and the boon that that is water uh, in in your in this work <laughs> um,
0: yeah I mean water is 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 a little bit of uh, both right um, um, it is um, an element that helps kind of transgress uh, that helps uh, see the uh, contingency of of, of borders, um, but in that what the, the kind of writer who helps me think about water is, is Magris uh, Claudia Magris, um, because Magris says you know it's we, we, we can't necessarily have a borderless world right borders are important because they um, give shape to um, give shape to the world. Um, and so w- the element of water has to be in many ways kind of have a form, have a, um, uh, have a shape. And so um, and th- that's, uh, I think, ultimately the, uh, the message of, of the book, right? That identity uh, is important um, as long as we recognize the fact that it is contingent. Right? Mm-hmm. That it is socially historically contingent and that it is not uh, set in stone uh, and that it is not kind of a natural element. That it is, again, the result of a myth, the result of a story that we, um, that we tell. And so, um, so yeah, Magris and, and Derrida certainly kind of help kind of conclude the, the trajectory of, uh, of, of, of the book
1: yeah and I think this sort of brings it full circle um, with the the idea of of the myth. Um, and so that I won't take up too much of your time. Um, I appreciate you you joining me this morning. I wanted to also hear a bit more about what's inspiring your next projects um, and and what you're working on now, what's coming next.
0: Oh, that's a very good question. I am um, still kind of resting uh, from this uh, uh, from this book, but um, I, I do have, um, you know, a, a new a new project, and um, it is about uh, Sicily uh, and the kind of you know um, Sicily uh, starting in the 1960s and uh, the reception of an Arab Sicilian, um, identity, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to be Sicilians, uh, and, uh, Arabs at the same time. Um, so I, I kind of take a look at, uh, this kind of Mediterranean identity of, of, of Sicily. It's still in its early stages. Um, but I, you know, I have, I have some, some chapters, some, some ideas, and hopefully in the next, you know, couple of years I will uh, I, will, I will have a manuscript.
1: Well, um, I think that taking a rest after this monumental of a project is is an important thing to do, um, but I'm also very much looking forward to seeing um, what this project brings. Um, and I thank you very much for, for joining me to talk about uh, your book on on modernism. And um, I hope to catch you again, perhaps on the podcast.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank-
1: Thank you so much. Take care. Bye.